Well, good morning to you all again. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you could turn to the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Chapter 10. Actually, I ought to have us all stand, close the Bible, and just say it. We should have it memorized by now. Chapter 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? And as I've said before, put your name in there. Just personalize it, because it applies to each one of us. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all the peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Father, we come to commit the word of God to you and the desire of our heart, Lord, to be a people conformed to its truth. Thank you, Lord, that even as we read these words, as they apply to your people of old, as you brought them out of Egypt, we think about the miraculous events that transpired as you intervened to bring them out of that bondage, delivering them from Pharaoh, from Egypt, bringing them, Lord, through the Red Sea, dealing with their enemies, setting them free to be your people. Well, we think about our own lives and realize that's just a picture of what you've done for us. Intervening in our life, Lord, to bring us out of bondage, darkness, out of a kingdom ruled by Satan, to be the people of God. You have performed a miracle, Lord, a profound miracle in our heart and life. You've raised us from the dead. You've opened blind eyes to see. You've given those who are deaf and cannot hear ears to hear. A heart, Lord, that beats with life. It was dead to you. Now it lives to you. Lord, we have a love put in us for you and a knowledge of you. We are the people of God, and we have a calling on our life. Father, we lift up the word of God to you as that which you have given 
as one of the main instruments that you use, Lord, to further your purposes in our life, that we would be truly men and women of God. We read these words from Deuteronomy. They're a call upon your people. They apply to your people no matter what age in history they are in. Father, you have called us to be separate, different, a contrast to the world. We need to be radically different. We live in a world of horrific darkness. And sadly, Lord, it is not just the world, but often in the professing church. Lord, keep us from that. May we be men and women who walk in light, who obey you, who know your word, and who by the power of your spirit walk in obedience to it. We come to you to lift up your word to you this morning and to ask you to meet us in understanding it and walking in obedience to it and how it applies to our life. Lord, thank you that you are sufficient to meet us in this great need of our life to be conformed to the image of your Son, to be a holy people. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning and the desire of your heart towards us that we be your sanctified people in the earth. We know that means you're going to speak to us about areas of our life that need to change. You do that not to condemn us, but Lord, to help us to become different. Lord, we desperately need to be spoken to. Whatever that word might be for us, Lord, in the need of our heart this morning, would you not speak and cause your word to be effectual in our heart and life. So we praise you and bless you and thank you for your love and goodness. And we commit the rest of this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to return this morning in our study of the Word of God to our study of the Pentateuch. And as an application of that study to the examination that we've been going through of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. We've been examining the meaning of the commandments individually. We have thus far looked at eight of them. And so this morning we come to the Ninth Commandment, which is in Deuteronomy 5, verse 20, which has to do with the particular application of probably one of the most convicting areas we could ever look at in the Word of God, has to do with our speech. <laughs> the ninth commandment, our speech in relationship to men. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That is a commandment that has to do with words, with what we say. And not just the words, but the spirit behind them. Because as we have seen with all the commandments, they not only deal with the outward behavior, but with the disposition of the heart. So before we get into the specifics of the ninth commandment and what it means, let's remind ourselves of some of the general principles spiritually that govern the law of God so that we have a proper understanding of it. We first of all have to understand the law of God, the moral law aspect of the law, right? The law of God in the Old Testament has three major segments to it. 
There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. I mean, you, you read the law is what it's called. We have divided that up into those categories to understand the different applications of it. We know from the New Testament the ceremonial aspect of the law, which had to do with the sacrificial system, has been completely fulfilled by Christ. It is no longer applicable. He has fulfilled it. We don't offer sacrifices for sin with animals anymore. One sacrifice for sin for all time has been accomplished in Christ, and therefore that aspect of the law is set aside. Israel's civil law no longer applies because Israel is no longer a theocracy under God. I believe in the latter part of history, whenever that might be, God is going to call a huge number of his people, physically, the Jews, into a right relationship with himself again. But the church is God's means today of manifesting his kingdom to the world. And when those Jews, those people of Israel do come into the kingdom, when God moves in a reviving way in their hearts and lives, they're going to come to Christ. We're all going to be one people. Civil law, ceremonial law abrogated. The moral law of God has not been set aside. That has to do with the Ten Commandments. And that's what we're looking at in our study together. And we have to understand the word that the moral law is an integrated whole. You don't segment the commandments. They all go together. The two tables of the law it's separated into the first four commandments and then the, the second table has to do with the last six commandments. They're all intimately connected. They can't be separated from one another. The first table having to do with the first four commandments have to do with our, rela our relationship with God, a personal relationship with the living God. The second table consists of the last six commandments, they have to do with our relationship with each other, vertical or horizontal, with men. In various aspects of our behavior, you have husbands and wives, parents and children. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. We have relationships that we have to maintain then there are those relationships with men outside of the church. Men and women of the world. And we're called to be then a sanctified people in our relationship with men. We're called by God to be holy in all our behavior, to honor father and mother, all who are in authority, to not commit murder, to not commit adultery, not to steal, to not bear false witness, and not to covet. So God's law then defines the parameters of what is holy and righteous in our relationship on a human plane and what a righteous and loving relationship means in our relationship with men. And again, we need to understand that we can only then, since this is an integrated whole, we can only obey the law of God in its true application to the heart in an outward behavior in relationship with people if we have experienced the application of the first table of the law to our hearts 
in relationship to God because the power to live this life comes out of that relationship with the living God. We have to be rightly related to God before we can be rightly related to men. The power to truly obey the commandments of God in a heart and outward life is derived then from a right relationship with God is defined by the first four commandments of His law. We have to know God to be in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Jesus' whole teaching on the gospel and salvation begins with repentance with respect to the first table of the law of God and rebellion against God and against His law. So that in coming to know Him as Savior and as Lord, one is delivered from that rebellion and separation from God and is brought into a reconciled relationship with God where in heart and life we are conformed to the righteousness of the first table of the law of God which calls for supreme love for Him, submission of the heart and life to Him, and implicit trust in Him and dependence upon Him. It's a relationship. And it's experiential. It's real. That then in turn will lead to the fruit of obedience and conformity to the remainder of the law of God in relation to people and the commands related to one's personal walk with the Lord. It's fruit. It comes out of a relationship with the Lord. Because a right relationship with God brings one into the experience of being regenerated by the sovereign power of God so that one possesses a new nature and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through union with Jesus Christ. The controlling principle of the law of God is love. Right? We know that. That's the heart of the law, as reflected in the two greatest commandments Jesus enunciated for us. The law can be summed up in two commandments. It's a summary, general command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Relationship. That's the greatest. Number one. That's why it's number one. It's the priority. The second has to do with men. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The overall calling on our life, the purpose of our creation, is that we reflect the character of God in how we live. God is love. And therefore, we are created, as we are created in the image of God, and meant to have love to be the controlling spiritual principle of our life. To love God supremely, to love men. We love our enemies. That's the command of Jesus to us. It's the command of the Word of God as a whole. We are never to hate anyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. Our enemy. They may try to kill us. They may kill us. Jesus on the cross asked his Father to forgive those who murdered him. Love. When man was originally created, this principle of love in relation to God and other individuals, it's embedded in the heart, written in the very nature of Adam and Eve. There was no sin, but when man fell, the image of God in him became effaced, not eradicated, but effaced. 
But in salvation in Christ, that image is restored and the law of God is written on the heart. And now in Christ, we are called to a walk of obedience to that law. Out of supreme love for him. And therefore, to obedience from the heart to the second table of the law in relationship to men. We obey the second table of the law because of our supreme love for God. And you can't help but want to do that because to know Christ is to have his life beating in your heart. The power of the Spirit, it's part of what we become. It's written in our spiritual DNA. You're going to love God and you're going to love people. It's just a natural desire of the heart. Now, it can be a battle. (laughs) It can definitely be a battle. But the desire of the heart is there. I want to do the will of God. I just have to fight to do it because there is the flesh we have to deal with. We've seen the application of the law of God in our relationship with one another and with all men has to do with the totality of our behavior in our heart and then our outward life. The heart of the law is love. The command of the law of God is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the command to love, that command to love is a general command. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? It is the particular commandments of the law of God that tell us what it means to love our neighbor. And these commandments get very detailed and specific with our heart behavior and very convicting because now we're talking about our thought life, attitudes, our motives, our desires, and feelings. That's a big issue. The thing we have to learn if we're going to obey God is you don't walk in feelings. You don't let feelings control you. You control your feelings. No matter how you feel, you may be very angry at something that's been done to you unjustly. It's okay to be angry as long as you don't sin. But you don't let that control you. Be angry, Paul said, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You don't let it fester, in other words so that it becomes a controlling thing in your heart. That's part of our sanctification. It's part of dealing with the inner aspect of our life, which is the most important aspect of all. It's what controls us, this heart. So we have those inward behaviors, motives, feelings, attitudes, desires, thoughts. But then we also have behaviors of speech and actions, the outward. It's extremely important that we heed this emphasis in the Word of God so that we don't live in the realm of general truth, in the realm of shadows and not light. Love does not mean that we're simply nice to people. That's how most people define it. Well, I'm nice. You can be nice to someone to their face momentarily and never love them. 
being nice is not what love really is all about. You will be nice, but it involves so much more. The meaning of love is defined by the commandments. General truth has to be applied in very specific ways. And that's what the moral law of God does. It gets into our heart as well as our outward life and our behavior. When we talk about, you know, in general truth, you, t- you talk about salvation. What does that mean? Are you saved? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm saved. Really? What does that mean? You know God? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know the Lord. Oh, what does that mean? What does it mean to know God? You born again? Oh, man, that's thrown around so much, that word, that phrase, born again. Oh, yeah, the moment you come, just believe in Jesus, you're born again. It doesn't matter how you live. You're born again. Really? What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to love and know God? Those are general statements. What do they mean? They have to be applied. The Word of God applies them for us so that we don't live in this nebulous realm of the general. 1 John 2, 3, By this we know we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Oh, Now we're going to get very specific and particular. 1 John 3, 9, No man born of God will practice sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Habitually sinning, he will not do that. What is sin? Lawlessness. Rebellion against the law of God. The commandments. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So the general truths then become defined by the practical application of the commandments to our behavior. So that one's thoughts, attitudes, desires, feelings, motives, speech, and actions will be conformed to the commandments of the law and the Word of God. So we're going to think a certain way. We're going to have certain attitudes that we maintain certain desires, feelings, motives, and as we're going to see this morning, speech. The Word of God is meant to be the controlling principle over every aspect of our being. We are to be conformed to the commandments of the law and the Word of God. So that brings us into the consideration of this ninth commandment of the law of God, having to do with the tongue, our speech, our words as we relate to people. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. As with the other commandments that we've studied, we have seen this commandment. These commandments all have a negative and a positive aspect to them. There is a commandment here that is couched right in negative terms. Thou shalt not. Well, that tells us something about us. <laughs> How we are inclined, <laughs> maybe, to do the opposite. So there's a forbidden commandment here. Do not 
allow yourself to do this. Thou shalt not. It forbids the uttering of falsehoods against a neighbor, bearing false witness. But inherent in the negative aspect of the command is the positive. Bear truthful witness to your neighbor. Speak the truth, only the truth. So that command, this command, as we're going to see, is not, but, but I, it's not limited. Let me put it that way. Simply to not lying under oath in a court of law and testifying about a man or a woman to speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Right. That's good. That's right. You don't bear false witness. Under oath, you speak truth, no matter what the cost. It does involve that, but this commandment is much broader. It speaks to the whole issue of our general relationship with men, what we say to them and about them to others, and how we say what we say and why we say what we say. That's getting into the heart and the spirit behind the words. What we say, how we say it, and why. The how and the why is just as important as the what. You can speak truth and do it in a wrong way. That's just as offensive to God as speaking falsehood. Are our words truthful and are they spoken with the right spirit in love? Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. Before we get into a detailed explanation and application of this commandment, let's just take a moment to reflect on the overall teaching of the Word of God on the tongue. The soberness of how God views our speech and the accountability that the Word of God reveals we must give to God for our words. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Begin with Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. A tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's addressing the Pharisees, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure, out of his heart, what is good. The evil man, evil heart, brings out of his evil treasure what's in his heart, what is evil. But I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they should give an accounting of it in the day of judgment. That should make us tremble. Every careless word before God. That men shall speak, they shall give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you'll be condemned.
You know, a, tr a tree is known by its fruit. So that's a, a word picture that is given to represent a spiritual truth. Habitual patterns of speech reveal the true nature of a man, what he truly is inwardly. Righteous speech is the fruit of a righteous heart. Unrighteous speech is the fruit of a sinful heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. Words reveal character. In being brought into a right relationship with God, a sinner becomes conformed to God's character. He is the God of truth, of holiness, of purity, of righteousness, and love. His people then become a people of truth, holiness, purity, righteousness, and love. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. To know God is to become like God. Therefore, this relationship of truly knowing God will be reflected in speech and relationship with men that is truthful, righteous, pure, holy, and loving, because that's what God is. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is that it's the extremely important connection between the heart and the spirit of a person inwardly and their outward behavior. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The reality of a man or a woman's true spiritual state is going to be seen in that which habitually now, we need to understand this, habitually characterizes that person's speech. Nobody this side of heaven is perfect in this. We all have a tendency at times to fail in how we speak. We're talking about what is habitual, that which is the dominating characteristic of a man or woman day in, day out. The daily pattern of one's speech. And then Jesus indicates the sober reality of accountability before God for our speech. He says, I tell you, this is the Son of God, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The seriousness of this cannot be overstated. God takes speech very seriously, and speech has eternal consequences as a barometer of the reality of a man or a woman's true state before God. In the day of judgment, speech alone will be an indicator of whether a person is justified or condemned. By your words you shall be justified, by your words you will be condemned. There is speech which is good and righteous, and speech which is evil and unrighteous in God's eyes. So turn to the book of Proverbs, if you would, in the Old Testament. What is right in God's eyes? Proverbs chapter 6, beginning with verse 16. <coughs> so that's the whole issue, is it not, in our life? What is right in God's eyes, not what is right in men's eyes? We are to live in accordance with the Word of God. And is 
that which honors the Lord, which he has revealed to us in his word. Proverbs 6 or 16, there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Look at Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. That which the Lord hates and is an abomination to him related to speech is a lying tongue, a false witness, one who spreads strife among brethren, a perverted mouth. Turn over to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 29 let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So Paul, Paul here in Ephesians 4 is dealing with speech. He says a believer is to lay aside falsehood and speak truth. He's to repudiate what he calls unwholesome words and slander. You notice how he also connects evil speech with the inner disposition of the heart. That has more emphasis here than the words. Anger, bitterness, wrath, malice. That is the root of evil speech like slander and lying. Now look at Colossians chapter 3. He goes into a bit more detail beginning with verse 5. Colossians 3 verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. That's what habitually characterized your heart and your life. But now, there's a difference. You also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction 
between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So is those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So here again, Paul puts great emphasis on the connection between the heart and the outward behavior And he gives this dramatic contrast between a person who's truly converted and one who is not regenerate. He says here the true believer has experienced a radical transformation of heart. He now has the power to walk in love in heart dispositions and behavior towards men. To love his neighbor as himself. He says there is a reality of the old self with its evil practices in contrast to the new self, which has been renewed, he says, and a true knowledge of God in the image of God. That's the restoration of the image of God in the heart of a man, conformed to the image of Jesus. And he says that these believers, before being regenerate with a new self, were sons of disobedience under the wrath of God because they lived and walked habitually in immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. That's what characterized their life in the heart and in their outward life. But now, Paul says, as those who come to know God and who are born again, they are to lay aside these evil heart dispositions and behaviors and walk in love. And the three forms of speech he references are lying, slander, and abusive speech. You notice again how he links the evil speech with sinful dispositions and attitudes of the heart. Anger, wrath, malice. Those are realities within in the heart. They can lead then to certain results in the outward life, especially in speech. But those sinful dispositions that can be a temptation to all of us, temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. So we face the reality of the possibility of having an attitude of malice towards someone because of what they may have done, anger, wrath that's boiling over, We have to deal with that. That's the root. We replace that with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. That's the fruit of love. And that will then bear fruit in loving speech. It's not enough just to deal with particular aspects of speech. We have to also deal with the inner behaviors of the heart in our thoughts and attitudes, our feelings, desires, and motives, which is the root of that speech. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 15. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. False witness, words, slander, speech. They come out of the heart in evil dispositions. Okay, turn to James 3, famous passage on the tongue. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. What is a teacher? One who speaks the Word of God. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Only God can do that. With it we bless our Father and our Lord, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? nor can salt water produce fresh. So what James is emphasizing here is the enormous power of the tongue for evil. Its ability in words to destroy men and relationships. The tongue uncontrolled, as James says, is a world of iniquity. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, it's set on fire by hell. An example he gives is cursing our neighbor. Cursing men who've been made in the image of God. That's a violation through speech of the law of love. A violation of the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our enemy. That command is a very practical application in speech. Well, that's kind of an overview of the teaching of Scripture on the tongue. And our speech is a vital aspect of our sanctification and how God views the importance of the tongue and not only what one says, but the spirit and the motive behind one's words in the heart is so important to have grounded in our mind so that we think, think before we utter speech. I'm in the presence of God. <laughs> Can he approve of what I'm about to say to a person 
or if they're not present about them to somebody else, would he approve of my motives? Would he approve of the spirit in which I'm speaking in? What is my heart like? How does he view this? That's how we have to begin to look at this. It's hugely important to him. And therefore, it must be hugely important to us because it's a practical application of what love means. I can talk about love all day long and being nice, that if my speech contradicts what I'm saying, it doesn't mean a thing what I say. My profession has to be backed up by the reality of my life. What is the spirit of my words? What's the motive behind them? And what am I actually saying? Is it truthful? The Word of God puts a great emphasis on the power of the tongue. It not only has great power for evil, it also has great potential for good. To be an encouragement to people. To promote what is good and righteous, but it also can promote what is evil and unrighteous. It can build up and encourage and comfort. It can destroy, discourage, and wound. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The tongue can be the means of God in declaring the word of God to alter the eternal destination of a man or a woman and bring them to salvation or the instrument in the hands of Satan to teach false doctrine and deceive men about salvation and seal their destination to hell. The word of God then, as this short survey indicates, gives warning after warning regarding speech that is hateful to God that is an abomination to him. Men may think it's just fine. It's an abomination to God. It's not reflective of his character of truth, purity, holiness, and love, especially in our relationship with men. In a general sense, the Word of God gives descriptions of unrighteous speech, designating speech, for example, as being corrupt, Perverted, unwholesome, abusive, wicked, destructive, evil. Then it gives us very specific applications of what those general categories consist of. And the ninth commandment is one of those specific applications. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The positive aspect of that commandment, as we've seen, has to do with being truthful in all of our dealings with men. In Ephesians 4.25 again, commands us, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor in love. Therefore, to obey the positive means one must repudiate and turn from all forms of speech that are opposed to truth. All lying. All forms of lying. Which include gossip, slander, insults. Reviling, maligning, judging, impugning motives. Well, I know why he did so and so. You don't know any such thing. You judge, condemn. That's unrighteous speech. In one form or another, bearing false witness against our neighbor involves all of those. 
That can lead then to great hurt and harm to our neighbor, the destruction, shredding of a reputation, deeply wounding individuals, spiritually and emotionally, the destroying of relationships between two individuals, the promoting of strife, conflict, disunity between brothers, the sowing of a negative impression of someone in another person's mind based on the speaking of false information, gossip, slander, bearing false witness, passing on information. I have no clue if it's true or not, but I'm going to pass it on. Facilitating what is very possibly slander. Gossip and slander are often equated together. They are a little bit different. Slander is the intentional sharing of false information about a person to defame them. That's the whole point. I have an agenda with this individual. I am going to do everything I can to destroy them. Gossip is a passing on of information that does not need to be shared. That may be true, it may not be, from a perverse motive of putting someone in a bad light. Sharing information that one is not certain is true, just innuendo, it is closely aligned with slander. I've seen that in my own family firsthand, a whisper campaign, very destructive of familial relationships. Totally unnecessary. In Titus chapter 2, Paul admonishes older women not to be what he calls malicious gossips. Don't want to pick on women here. Men can do the same thing. But you notice the term, malicious gossips. The Greek term translated malicious gossips is the word diabolos. Isn't that interesting? Diabolos. That's a word that describes Satan, the devil. That indicates that when one engages in slander and gossip, one is identifying with the work of Satan. We don't want to do that. That's why we need to take this so seriously. We need to have this embedded deeply in our heart to understand the seriousness of this before God and the power of words. Lying, slander, and gossip are the three forms of speech that are most often emphasized in the command to not bear false witness. And the dispositions of the heart that are intimately connected to that which are the root of lying, slander, gossip, and false witness are condemned, such as anger, bitterness, resentment, malice, unforgiveness, hatred, despising someone in the heart, feeling. I just feel this. Well, stop it. (laughs) I don't care if you feel that. That doesn't mean a thing. It's evil. You have to deal with that. You don't live by your feelings. We live by the will of God and the power of the Spirit is in us to give us grace to do this. Envy, jealousy, guile, deception. The desire for revenge, 
the desire to hurt, to wound, to defame. These heart dispositions towards any and all men, these forms of speech are absolutely forbidden by God. They are hateful to Him, an abomination to Him. They're a violation of the law of God that commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, not to bear false witness. Just listen for a moment to the Word of God. I mean, just a few out of the Old and New Testaments, a few of the statements that it makes. We could go, we could be here the rest of the afternoon quoting scripture on this. Leviticus 19, 16 to 18. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. That is not unrighteous speech if it's done with the right spirit. But you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The spirit, the dispositions of the heart, and speech and our actions. Proverbs 4.24, put away from you a deceitful mouth, put devious speech far from you. Proverbs 6.12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth. Proverbs 11.9, with his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor. Proverbs 16.27 and 28, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like a scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. You can bear false witness in two ways. You can say what is untruthful about a man, and then you can confirm a wicked man in his evil by saying he's good. That's bearing false witness too. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Colossians 3.8, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 1 Peter 2.1, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Titus 2.3, older women, as I just quoted, don't be malicious gossips. Titus 3.1-2, remind these believers, Titus, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Government authorities. That's what he's talking about there in Titus 3. And one of the things that grieved me during the COVID pandemic and the government mandates, those government mandates were given out of a desire to protect people, to mitigate the spread of the disease, 
what was so grieving was the brazen dismissal of the commands of the Word of God from many within the church who defied government mandates and maligned government officials by slandering them, impugning their motives. They maligned them. And I, I heard it. They're lying to you. They have evil motives. They're trying to shut down the church. No, they're not. They didn't shut down the church. That was never their motive to begin with. Were they lying? You know his heart? Your governor's heart? That's <laughs> what you're saying. I know his motives. The guy's a liar. Really? No, he isn't. I think he's genuinely trying to do what he's been mandated to do in a state of emergency. He has the right to do what he's doing. I may disagree in some respects, but I can do that respectfully, not impugning motives. So that, that is part of bearing false witness. I saw this all the time. That is a rebellion against Titus 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to malign no one. That's the word of God. To impugn motives is to engage in slander. To slander is to bear false witness against our neighbor. Government officials are our neighbor. Our words matter. They will matter before the judgment seat of Christ and the final judgment before God. What we say matters. The spirit behind our words matter. How we speak and the motive of why we are speaking matters. The desires, the feelings, the attitudes, the thoughts towards another person conjoined with motives matter. Are the words spoken truthful and are they rooted in love? Speaking the truth in love. Gossip, slander, defaming. Reviling, judging, condemning. That's what Satan does. That was part of his attack against Jesus and Paul. It's a weapon that he constantly uses against believers. And you cannot walk with Christ in this world and not experience slander. You will experience it. What do you do with that? You do what Jesus did. You don't turn around and do to the people what they're doing to you. <laughs> he don't slander them in return. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He did not revile while being reviled. Guard your speech. It's just part of the cost of the warfare we're in. You will be slandered. Just be prepared. But know what to do when you are committed to the Lord. Don't let it get to your heart. All of that kind of behavior is indicative of the unregenerate heart. And therefore, as the followers of Christ, we do not in any way want to be identified with the enemy of men's souls who is a liar, a murderer, and a slanderer, the accuser of the brethren. And so we need to realize also that the ninth commandment deals directly 
with man's relationship with man, while it does deal directly with man's relationship with man, it also is possible in our speech to bear false witness against God. You remember the children of Israel in the wilderness and their trials they were going through, they impugned God's motives, His purposes. They attack His character. They slander God. While they're there in the wilderness, we know why you brought us out here. You brought us out here to kill us all in the wilderness. They're slandering God. Satan slandered Job before God. Impugn Job's motives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus were not truly raised from the dead, then to proclaim that he was would be to bear false witness against God who, does, who did not raise him from the dead. He, he says that specifically. We're bearing false witness against God. We're saying God has done something he did not do and giving them false hope. Well, that speaks in a very sober way to the issue of false prophets who distort the gospel and the word of God. They speak falsehood in the name of God and thereby they're bearing false witness against God. It's one of the reasons James warns all of us to be very careful about seeking to teach the word of God because our words will be judged by God and as a teacher of the word of God, they must accurately reflect what God says lest we be guilty of bearing false witness against God. As we look objectively at what the Word of God teaches us about speech and how God evaluates it and His call on our lives to be very holy in our spirits and in our manner of speaking, when we speak to men or about men, we realize how easy it is for us to fall prey to speech that is condemned by God. Because we are surrounded on every hand by men and women whose lives in this culture are saturated with the impure, the unrighteous, and the unloving aspects of speech. All you have to do is listen to the political discourse in our day. It is grieving to the core. Speech how a man speaks about others tells you a lot about the man. Wicked speech that's habitual reflects a wicked man. That's what the Word of God says. We need to bear that in mind in all of our relationships with people. We need to realize this culture we live in is utterly godless. We are called to be different. We can begin to be desensitized to how abhorrent that kind of language is to God because it is so common. Lying, slander, gossip, bearing false witness, that is absolutely forbidden by God. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. Isaiah testified that he became convicted by God of being a man of unclean lips. And then he said this, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've become desensitized 
to what I am because of the prevailing culture in which I live. The influence of the world. We're called to be radically different and in our speech to reflect the character of God. We are to be a people of truth who deal truthfully with our fellow man, in purity with our fellow man, in love with our fellow man. And that requires that we take the issue seriously before God and that we take personal responsibility for our tongue so that we walk in obedience to the Word of God. We have the ability and the power by the Holy Spirit to obey God in this whole area of righteous speech before Him. But to do so, we have to see clearly that anger, wrath, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, and malice in spirit is sinful. That lying, bearing false witness, slander, reviling, gossip are hateful to God. They're an abomination to Him. And He calls upon us to resolutely deal with the temptation in our life to not go there by the power of the Spirit put aside, put away. Put off, put on. Stand against it, repudiate it. And if we do sin, to repent of it, but don't excuse it. It's sin. Call it what it is. Be honest before God. I blew it. Lord, I sinned in what I said. My heart was wrong. Deal with it. There's not going to be any freedom before God unless we do. You know, one of the things it says in Psalm 15 about who can stand in the holy place with God, it's those who speak truth in the heart, and it's those who do not slander with their speech. If you're going to walk with God and know Him intimately, we've got to deal with this. We can't give ground to sin in the way we speak and have fellowship and communion with the God who is holy. So James gives us this warning in James 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Worthless. Vain. As we've seen that word vain, your heart is far from me, Jesus said to the Jews. Therefore, your worship is vain. Unbridled tongue reflects a heart that's far from God. So in order to deal with the speech, we have to deal with the heart to make sure the heart is right before God. But it's our responsibility by the power of the Holy Spirit to bridle and guard our tongues against sinful speech, to resolutely repudiate the temptation to sin with our tongue. We repudiate and put off the negative. We put on the positive in both our heart disposition and our speech. The exhortation of the Word of God is that we put off and put on in a very definitive, resolute way, making no excuses for the flesh and calling sin what it is, but also clinging to the Lord for His grace and power to obey Him out of a desire to honor Him. So the, the psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 14, prays, May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How do you get victory over this? You cultivate an intimate 
relationship with the Lord. You go back to the first table of the law. The power to obey this comes out of that relationship. You've got to abide in the Lord. Love Him supremely. Be deepened in that love. Submit to Him. The Spirit of God will work that desire to obey Him in the heart. And He'll give the power to do it. And you'll find you can do it. The moment you say no, definitively and resolutely to sin and depend upon the Lord, you find, I can do this. I can do this. It's just that we often don't do that. We make excuses. <laughs> you can't get victory over sin making excuses for sin. We have to deal with it. So Colossians 3, now you also put them all aside definitively. Put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, dispositions of the heart, speech, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Far from you. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you put on the new self. Indwelt by the Spirit of God, you're one with Christ. You walk in a supernatural power. You've been renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who has created you. And so it's those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, spirit of the heart, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all this, put on a spirit of love for each and every person in your life. Resolutely, aggressively, put off and put on. Independence on the Lord, knowing how much we need His wisdom, power, and grace. So the psalm, the psalmist, the prayer of the psalmist, Psalm 120, verse 2 Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Lord, help me. <laughs> Please help me. Give me wisdom to know how to speak. Stop me. <laughs> Stop me in my tracks if I'm getting ready to do something that crosses a line. Help me to think before I speak. We cling to the Lord in prayer and an attitude of dependence for deliverance from sin, but we also have to choose to repudiate it, to say no to it in the heart and behavior. We cannot be passive. And God is faithful. He's faithful to meet us so that we be a people in whom the righteousness of the law of God is fulfilled relative to our speech, Romans 8, 4. In all of our relationship with men, that our hearts and our tongue be controlled by the spirit of love. So we need to examine our hearts this morning and to ask ourselves a simple question. What characterizes my life with respect to how I speak? What is the pattern of my speech on a daily basis in my relationship with men? What characterizes the dispositions of my heart and my motives towards men? If there is a pattern we're talking about day in, day out, pattern, not occasional failings, but a pattern of habitual living, of speech that is gossipy, 
slanderous, lying, impure. And we need to realize we've never been born again. That's what Jesus says. A tree is known by its fruit. None of us is going to be perfect in this. But there's a radical change that takes place where there's the desire of the heart to be right before God. And there is a pattern, overall pattern, of doing what is right in God's eyes. That doesn't mean we don't fail at times. But it's not habitual. And if we truly know the Lord, but we've given way on occasion to sinful speech like Isaiah then we need to repent towards God and resolutely commit ourselves to be men and women whose speech is far removed from lying, slander, gossip, bearing false witness, and from those sinful dispositions of unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and wrath and malice, so that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to, oh, Lord, your words at times can be so incredibly convicting, and they, that's, that's a good thing, Lord. That's a good thing. You don't bring that conviction to beat us down, but to lift us up. To help us, Lord, to see and understand what real sanctification means and the very practical and very specific applications to our heart and our actions and our speech. Lord, you command us to be holy in all our behavior, every aspect of it. And this whole issue of speech, it's very clear from the Word of God, from what you say. It's an area, Lord, we need to take to heart. We need to see clearly what we need to deal with in our own lives that we might be a people truly sanctified in this area of our life. In the heart, in our outward actions and behavior and our speech, Lord, that we would truly be men and women of God who love our neighbor who love you first and foremost, but Lord, in a practical way, who walk in obedience to your commandments in love for our neighbor out of love for you. So Lord, convict us where we need it. Show us areas where we need to change because by your power we can. We can be a different people and grow in that ability, Lord, to speak righteously and lovingly in a holy manner, in a way that honors you in all our relationships. So we ask you, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to enable us to obey you, that you would lead and guide our steps all the days of our life in all our relationships with people, to have a right heart disposition towards all men, that you would keep us from sinful attitudes and thoughts and motives and desires and feelings. Help us to deal with that aspect of our heart, but then, Lord, in our speech, to scour the Word of God and to look at what you teach, Lord, in your commandments, 
to make certain that we do not give ground to bearing false witness, to evil speaking, corrupt speech, the perverted mouth, unwholesome words, lying, slander, gossip, defaming, reviling. Oh, Father, help us to be holy and to be loving. So we commit all this to you and thank you for your presence with us, for your love for us and your commitment to us to make us truly your people who honor you and how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.